Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup is the ever insightful Lucy Caldwell. Lucy is a veteran political strategist, tech founder, and former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Welcome back, Lucy. It's great to see you. Happy to be with you guys. And senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at the University of Southern California, our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike, always great to have you on. Welcome back. Great to be with you guys. And returning to the roundup is politicology fan favorite Molly McHugh. Molly is a highly regarded writer and researcher of Russian influence and information warfare. Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of an excellent newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks for having me on. On this week's Roundup, a slew of news on Putin's war and the Russian massacre in Bucha. The Republicans vowing to attack corporations and advance their move toward authoritarianism if they take back control of Congress. And then when we move over to Politicology Plus, we're going to talk about some research into what would happen if Fox News viewers watched CNN instead. Politicology Plus is a private ad-free version of the podcast with extra episodes and discussions and strategy sessions you can't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in Apple Podcasts, you can navigate to the Politicology Show in that app and tap the button to try it for free, or you can create an account over at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Wednesday, the Pentagon confirmed that Russian forces have withdrawn from the area around Kyiv after more than six weeks of fighting and failing to capture the capital city. In March, CIA Director Bill Burns said Putin originally believed he'd take the city within a few weeks, within a few days of his televised declaration of war. Russia is not leaving Ukraine. They're repositioning their troops into the Donbass region in the east, according to NATO and other Western officials. As the Russian troops reposition, we're seeing that the civilian cost of the war has been even greater than we thought. Hundreds of dead civilians were found in Bucha, a suburb of Kyiv, after Ukrainian forces retook the city. Some were found in mass graves, while others were found in the streets. Here's how a CNN article described the gruesome site. Quote, Some lie face down on the pavement while others are collapsed on their backs, mouths open in a tragic testament to the horrors of Russian occupation. The hands of one man are tied behind his back with a piece of white cloth. Another man lies alone, tangled up in a bicycle by a grassy bank. A third man lies in the middle of the road near the charred remains of a burned out car, end quote. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky spoke to the United Nations Security Council on Tuesday And we're going to pivot back to that later. But he said Russian soldiers shot women outside their houses. They murdered entire families and attempted to burn their bodies. Some were shot in the back of their head after being tortured. And on Tuesday, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, what we've seen in Bucha is not the random act of a rogue unit. It's a deliberate campaign to kill, to torture, to rape, to commit atrocities, end quote. So 
Molly, I want to begin with you. Earlier this week, Russian officials denied that civilians were killed in Bucha and said that the images of murdered civilians were faked by Ukrainian forces. Uh, according to the BBC, satellite images from March 19 show what appear to be bodies on the ground in Bucha. So what was your reaction to seeing this level of violence and war crimes? What's the Kremlin's goal in claiming that this was faked? And looking forward, as Ukrainian forces retake some of the territories Russia was occupying, what should we expect to see next? I think, um, you know, if if you've been following what Russia has been doing militarily under Putin, uh, unfortunately, there's nothing here that wasn't expected. I think it's it's still pretty shocking to see it in the context of a country which Putin has claimed is so similar to Russia uh, and belongs in Russia. If that, in fact, is true, if Ukrainians and Russians are one, as his 7,000-word essay claimed, um, why on earth would you think the way to approach the historical unity of the Slavic peoples is to commit these atrocities against them? I think it's really hard to create any sort of uh, narrative in which any of that makes any sense at all. Um, but I think this is the Russian military that we have seen in Georgia, that we saw in Syria, that we have seen uh, operating in other places. Um, when they do not have the physical and technical strength to win battles um, the way that they should be able to, they resort to terror, uh, to, to utter horror, um, to trying to control. Um, the environment around them through getting people to stop fighting. And I think that's clearly the goal here in Ukraine. Um, seeing the inequality of, uh, of morale more than anything else, that the Russian soldiers would rather be anywhere else than this, and that Ukrainians will fight until the very end. Um, they're trying to level that playing field by making this war unpalatable to civilians by killing civilians. And I think... You know, there's been a lot of debate this week about is genocide the right term? The Ukrainians using this is unfortunate. Uh, it will it will create debates that don't need to be happening. But I don't know what else to call it. Where Putin has openly stated uh, he wants to erase Ukraine, he wants to erase Ukrainian history, he wants to erase the Ukrainian language, um, and is now clearly giving military orders to enact that that are not you know, soft erasing, but physical assassination of civilian populations. Um, in Georgia, for example, after the, the war in 2008, there were villages that were ethnically cleansed of their, Georgians, of their Georgian populations when they were occupied by the Russians, and then bulldozed to the ground entirely so that no one could ever return to them. Like, this is the mindset that this military force brings to what they're doing. Um, I don't know why we're not willing to call what the Russians are doing by the correct names and looking for other ways to give them comfort uh, and cover. I think that still represents um, this bizarre hope that there will be a peaceful negotiated solution in which Putin will go back into his box and the rest of us can go back to everyday business and there won't have to be a prolonged standoff or military conflict with the Russians. Um, but I don't think that that's achievable anymore with Ukraine um, 
because with every one of these images, it is not eroding the will of people to fight. It is convincing them they have no alternative but to fight and that they are the only ones who will fight for themselves and for their futures. Um, and that this is where we are leaving them with only this choice to fight for themselves against the Russians. So I think I probably didn't answer at least one of your questions, but I think um, it's hard to look at the kind of images that we're seeing um, when it is so clear that people who did nothing are being shot uh, for no reason outside of all rules of engagement and laws of war. I think what we can expect as territory is retaken by the Ukrainians um, will be more signs of the same, um, probably a lot of mass graves. Um, there's already been some indication that those have been discovered in a number of places. Um, I think that's what we're going to see. It's hard to catalog any of that. It's hard to catalog, you know, if you're looking at a place like Mariupol, where there's also been this total war against the population, um, it's hard to catalog who left, who got out, who escaped versus who died in the rubble, who died of starvation, who is still there, who was captured, who was forcibly deported to Russia. It's going to take a long time to unravel all of this. But I would just point out that every one of those things, uh, killing civilians, forcible starvation, forcible deportation are war crimes. And um, it's time for us to hold Russia accountable for what it has done. So Mike and Lucy, before um, we... I have another question uh, for both of you, but I want to give you an opportunity to just react to the the Bucha massacre and and what what is going through your mind with with this new revelation, Lucy. Yeah, I mean, I I think that it's certainly our greatest fear, and it is what's been going through my mind in recent days is how much our attention span for what is happening in Ukraine here has dwindled and how much energy there was around this, say a month ago, six weeks ago, when there was not only a fear of an initial Russian encroachment, but then an invasion and then a fear that you know could really find its way into into more parts of Europe. And it hasn't, but it, it has gotten simultaneously much worse for the Ukrainian people. And the promises made by Putin and the Russians, or the claims rather, that, that this was going to be a nonviolent, limited uh, engagement have turned out not to be true. And so there's this, uh, as, as the attention paid by the West has gone down, the plight and the just sort of terror and horror being experienced on the ground in Ukraine has only gotten worse. And so that inverse relationship is what I'm thinking a lot about because you can't, you can't force people to glue their eyes to a TV screen or to news headlines, but it seems clear. And, you know, we have lots of recent examples of similar situations like Afghanistan that, that people, authoritarians like Putin, um, you know, violent dictators and regimes like Putin's, they operate most effectively when we're not paying as much attention as, as we might be able to. 
Yeah, Mike, um, I'm interested in your reaction and and also to Lucy's point, this is coming as people are hitting a breaking point with rising gas prices, for example. Do you think these images are going to spur calls for more action, even if it could hurt Americans economically? I think it'll actually do the opposite. I think, unfortunately, what's going to happen is it's going to make it easier for Americans specifically to turn away from the horrors and just say, this is a war we should not be engaged in. This is unfortunate. It's horrible. It's barbaric. But I don't want to get caught in this morass again. And the realities of war are setting in. Um, As we've talked about here on, on the podcast, this is really the first war of the digital age, of the, you know, social media age. Uh, in a way that we are getting, you know, real-time uh, photos and evidence and information and misinformation coming onto our phones and watching this unfold on a daily basis. The attention span of the average American is not that long. I think Lucy made a really good point is people are not tuning in already. Uh, we're only 45, 50 days into this thing, war, and people have already kind of had had enough. They're already kind of moving their attention away from it. Um, it doesn't mean that people aren't aware of it and they aren't concerned about it. But I am concerned that a longer protracted battle with vivid imagery um, like we are seeing is more likely over time to dissipate America's interest in engaging and driving um, some of the outcome than otherwise would be the case. And I think that's that's troubling for a whole lot of reasons. Um, not the least of which is we're going to see a continuing slaughter of the Ukrainian people. And um, I think in terms of reassuring our allies in NATO, um, public opinion domestically here in the United States is going to be extraordinarily important. We've also seen a coalescing of kind of the anti-NATO forces in the Republican Party. 63 votes were taken the other day, basically, you know, I, I don't want to say condemning, but but pretty damn near basically saying NATO's not something that we should be involved with or engaged with. I mean, 63 Republicans had the temerity to go down on the House floor and vote in that direction. You have uh, the largest vehicle of the right wing media system, Fox News, um, some of their top talent openly, you know, promoting Russian talking points. It's not going to take too long for this to seep into the base of the Republican Party and start driving some of the intentions of these politicians. That's concerning as we head into the midterms, um, because this lack of a unified voice here in the United States, I think, undermines ultimately the position of our Western allies. I think it gives them some pause and fear and concern about whether or not we are going to be there if we are called. And I think that's a legitimate concern, especially after the Trump administration um, basically said, "We're, you know, we, Macron said we can't count on the United States. We're we're doing this by ourselves during the Trump era, and 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 the domestic split that we have um, is just very concerning. And and you, under normal circumstances, I would think that seeing charred bodies and and the slaughter of innocents would rally Americans behind the cause of humanity, if not freedom, but you know, I also thought we would rally um, and unify uh, to fight um, a disease, a pandemic. Um, I thought we would rally and fight on a whole number of different fronts that we have not been able to muster that kind of unity. And again, and I'll end on this, I, I just, we have to keep in mind that this is, a, this is a long-term battle that has already been engaged. The divisions that we are, that we are seeing domestically, these irreconcilable splits, have been exacerbated by Russian 
media campaigns, by Russian propaganda, by Russian influence in our society to for just exactly this moment, for exactly this purpose, is to uh, to prevent democracies generally, American democracies specifically, from coming together and uniting to serve as a bulwark against a, a Russian expansionism. And that's why this has been a long, this has been a 10-year play. This is what this has been about. And we're seeing we're seeing the fruits of that play uh, play out. And my strong sense is there's probably um, there is probably going to be a, 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 another round of of this, you know, um, propaganda war that um, will be quite sophisticated, quite aggressive, and probably quite effective on behalf of the Russians, um, you know, communicating into Western democracies. So, since you brought up Republicans, um, I have I have one question about this to any of you who have have thoughts on it. But as we were preparing for this episode yesterday in our editorial meeting, I was just expressing a lot of frustration at how none of the members of what we now call the Putin wing of the Republican Party have actually, you know, been forced to answer in in some kind of coherent way for the 180 that the Republican Party has now done on Russian on our foreign policy toward Russia. And I don't understand that. Um, and I was looking for some what 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 is the most what is the steel man argument for this position? And I I don't know what it is. Is there any credibility whatsoever to the Republicans who now see see Vladimir Putin as some strong ally of the United States? I don't understand where it's coming from. If it's anything other than sort sort of pure cravenness and. I've seen none of them sit down with a serious journalist to have a serious conversation about this because I don't I don't think there is any seriousness to it. But I want to just lay it out there and see if I'm wrong. If if any of you have seen anything other than that, I think it's two things. One, and they're unrelated, and one applies more in the Putin category than the other. The first thing that I think about when trying to piece together these strange allegiances is that the wing of the Republican Party that is now dominant. You know, I don't think that I don't think that you can track these things in a straight line. I don't tend to think that like the Tea Party led to Trump directly, any of that. But the current Republican movement and the populist movement within the Republican Party really prides itself on rejecting neoconservatism and on rejecting hawks, like war hawks, right? And they all often I think almost caricature that, you know, the the never Trump movement is just like a bunch of war hawks who've been put out to pasture. And and so in that way, the this is like how the kind of like anti-anti-Trump crowd is worse than the Trump crowd sometimes, right? It's like the the anti-neocon movement, and I'm just to be clear, no hawk myself. But it is it is so strong. That vein is so rich, I think, in the current Republican Party that the idea of isolationism or the idea of not being the world's policeman has come transposed with believing that that even in these cases, by extension, you begin defending these authoritarians, right? I think. And then the other piece of that is, and less so with Putin, but others like more so with, with the kind of mini Putins that we see popping up like people like Viktor Orban, there's this idea, I think, that um, the leader of Hungary, there's this idea that has overtaken the Republican Party that the the answer, that the, the, the threat of wokeness and liberalism 
is so vast that we should just lean into um, the kind of like Christian populism, uh, this really perverse orientation and set of attitudes that really begins to trade a preference for individual liberty or freedoms or liberalism in favor of a of a um, a hardcore hold the power in tightly figure like Putin and and they've become very comfortable with cults of personality and we know that because the Republican Party itself is a cult of personality so I would just say I think it's less about an affirmative passion for Putin and more of a twisted sick backlash to what they have convinced themselves are the greatest threats to the their America first way of life. I think that's a I think that's a really helpful way of understanding it. Unless anybody else has other I I, I just I can't see anything serious about the it, there isn't a doctrine in other words there isn't some coherent foreign policy doctrine uh that that that's been offered. It's purely cultural personality and and sort of grievance based. But to some extent, I think it's also the extent to which we let them write their narrative of this uh, and how much it's actually a real thing versus something they're conveniently making up in, in retrospect. Um, I, you know, the anti-anti-neocon or the anti-anti-anti-neocon thing or whatever it is that's happening now is, I think, maybe true for some, but like Madison Cawthorn has no idea what any yeah. of that means or what the Iraq war was or who was in it because he was like two years old at the time and was probably still a freaking moron. But not I even think, because of that, because he was a moron then and now. <laughs> and now always a moron. Absolutely. Um, the uh, but I think, you know, I think some of this, though, if you look at the language that they get away with telling these stories and it's just ridiculous, like the language that some of these Republican members tried to use to excuse why they're not supporting NATO wasn't we're against NATO. NATO is not doing enough of its mandate to support democracy, which obviously is BS. That is not why they are voting against this resolution, right? It is 100% the crazy talking points that they live inside. But we let them get away with saying this stuff. And then their voters are like, oh, you're right. It's the same way. I mean, the first one of the first Trump foreign policy talking points that he got his voters to absorb in 2016 before the election was NATO's not fighting terrorism. Does everybody remember this from mm-hmm. the summer of 2016? Mm-hmm. It was like one of the three coherent talking points that people could come up with against uh, against against NATO was NATO's not fighting terrorism. And we're still letting these people get away with the stuff that isn't actually what they're talking about. NATO's not fighting terrorism. NATO's not defending democracy, blah, blah, blah. And um, all of that is a cop-out on, as, as Lucy pointed out, having anything to say on their own. Like there is no ideology here. Um, but I think the inherent danger of uh, these m- much more organized people on the right, but let us not excuse the people on the left who are coming from a much more coherent position in how they talk about it of isolationism, of this idea that we have no, no right or duty to speak in the world or to represent freedom or defend democracy in the world that we should just be at home staring at ourselves and talking about how wonderful we are and making clean energy and clean water for ourselves. Um, that's not how any of this is going to work anymore. But but we're still letting everybody get away with these disconnected isolationist views and not presenting a vision of their own about all the other things. And um, I think um, 
you know, the real, the pivot point, the sort of danger point we're at with Ukraine, where even the people who are on the right side are now wrapped in their own talking points of we're so united and successful against Russia, which is just absolute BS. Uh, We are not united. Uh, If we fail to stand up and fight in Ukraine for Ukraine to save Ukrainian lives, um, it will very much be the end of NATO, in my view, and the, the break in the Western alliance that might actually finally unravel it. Um, but we're not confronting that because it's so freaking uncomfortable to have to think about it. Um, but even on that side, we're sitting on our talking points of everything is so great and unified and wonderful. And you don't have an American administration who is on the right side of the argument pushing people on these things in public, explaining to people why we are there, why it matters. Instead, it's the opposite. It's it's like the de-escalation narrative of like, yeah, yeah, you're going to pay more for gas, but there's nothing else that's going to be required of you. Um, we're not doing ourselves a favor with any of this um, when it is all mere political convenience. And it's it's really hollow and sad to me. So I mentioned earlier Zelensky's address to the UN Security Council uh, on Tuesday, where he showed a video of the horrors Ukraine found in Bucha. And Zelensky's address called into question the value of the United Nations if it can't act against these crimes against humanity or punish perpetrators. He called for reforming the Security Council to hold Russia accountable. The UN Charter gives veto power to the five permanent members of the Security Council, France, Great Britain, China, the United States, and Russia. So how should we be thinking about Russia's ability to to continue committing war crimes without facing any consequences because of its position on the Security Council, Molly? I think Zelensky's superpower since the beginning of the war uh, has been his absolute lack of fear in holding up the mirror and telling us what's in it. And it's very uncomfortable uh, for us, for NATO, for Europe, for everyone else that he has called out and said, why are you not doing what you should be doing to help us? Um, And I think the UN did not escape (laughs) the the sharp gaze uh, and the the very open point of, and and look, this is not the first issue where we've had this discussion about the UN. What is the point of it if it's not actually able to do any of the things because the bad guys are so wrapped up in the power structures and, and all the things that it is impossible to get coherent statements on war crimes, um, on, uh, on, you know, other issues, on what happened here, on what happened in Georgia, on what happened in Syria, on what ha- what's happening in Yemen. You know, everybody vetoes whatever they feel like vetoing so that they're not the one who ends up in the target. But in this particular instance, I think um, there is, this is such a documented war and such a live streamed war uh, and there is just so much material. It is very smart for Zelensky to use the moment to call these things out. I mean, again, it's it's a risk-reward strategy of you're pissing everybody off who you actually need to help you. And I'm sure a lot of people are telling him to shut up. But this is not the time to be quiet and be nice and hope that people are going to show up for you. I think what the Ukrainians have learned in these first 41, two days of the war is being quiet doesn't help at all. It's being loud that is the thing that helps. Um, and they're going to keep being loud. 
Um, and I don't think we should expect them to stop. And I think we should, in fact, look in that mirror that they're holding up and ask ourselves why it is that we think we can't do more to stop these kinds of atrocities when we keep telling ourselves over and over again that that's what we want to do. Okay, let's turn to sanctions now. Um, In response to the massacre in Bucha, the U.S. is increasing sanctions on Russia, including Russia's largest financial institution, Spurbank, and its largest private bank, Alpha Bank. They won't be able to conduct any transactions with American financial institutions and will freeze assets the banks hold in the United States. Spurbank holds nearly one-third of Russia's banking sector assets, and the U.S. is also levying sanctions on members of Russia's Security Council, including former President and Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev and Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin, and Putin's two adult daughters. So I'm really curious about what you all think about uh, how, how Putin will react to the sanctions against his family. Molly, do you want to lead off and then... Mike and Lucy, I'm curious about your thoughts here. I mean, I think it's an interesting tactic. I think the thing with the daughters in particular is clearly the thing they've been holding in reserve. Like they're trying to close the circle in sort of one ring at a time and get closer and closer to Putin to make him feel squeezed. Uh, I think what the reaction is will be interesting. This is not obviously the most significant thing in terms of deterring Russian behavior uh, in any way, shape or form. But I do think it's an important signal to start sending. I think the stuff about Spearbank and Alpha Bank uh, is much more important. Um, if you pull up the lobbying history of both of these institutions, they have spread a lot of money around Washington and around Europe. Uh, I can name at least four lobbyists who have bought their vacation homes, probably in cash, having worked for Spearbank and others uh, afterward. Um, you know, this, these are institutions that have for a long time uh, maintained themselves as the good face, you know, the, the, like, the face we have to deal with of uh, the Russian oligarch universe. Um, so it's interesting to see that they have finally been moved into the target. And I think it's positive in the sense that it means we're starting to remove these colorations we have placed upon what is actually a very monotone landscape. Um, where there's the good guys and the bad guys within the bad universe, um, and starting to move them all into the same column of enablers of Putin and his regime, um, which is important. So that would be my quick comment on the on the sanctions. Mike, what are you thinking about that, and and in particular that the sorting that's happening among U.S. financial institutions that do business with these Russian banks and oligarchs? Well, I think this latest move is really an attempt to make. Um, you know, this inner circle that Molly was talking about, kind of social pariahs on the international stage as well. Uh, the, the actual impacts of kind of drawing out his family or his daughters, uh, as it were, it isn't going to you know, necessarily change the outcome of the war, maybe not even his approach to it. But what it will do is it's going to stigmatize and associate uh, the atrocities that we've seen in the past few days with Putin directly, with his family. And it really, I think, draws a line to the Indians and to the Chinese and to others that have been a little bit less than engaging in this conflict or, 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 or tacitly supporting it to say, this is where you stand. This is where you're at. And, um, and I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be effective, at least you know, on, the, on, the, on the global stage. Um, I also think, look, I mean, I'd like to see some of these folks that on, on K Street get squeezed too. And I think we need to do have some better investigation of seeing 
who were the lobbyists that were facilitating this? Make them pariahs. You know, you, you were the largesse that you have um, accumulated by working for these bad actors. And let's not kid ourselves. You knew this was a bad thing when you signed up for it should be known. Everybody should know in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country who these people are. We should make them famous and let them know that they were, you know, how much they made. You know, a lot of this was reportable. I'm yeah, sure there Tara, were a lot of, Foreign sure Agents of, Registration Act. This is all disclosable. Well, I'm sure there were a few briefcases full of cash that were probably handed around somewhere. But for what we can disclose and what we can track, we absolutely should. This is why it exists literally for this moment to say, who was taking money and acting in the interests of a foreign government? Let's find out. Put the, like I said, make them famous. Let's put them on, on, you know, on the nightly news, and let's let put their firms up there, and let's just say, hey, this guy was pulling down two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month working for a dictatorship. Um, there's, if there are no questions, you weren't acting illegally. We all ought to know that. Everybody ought to know that. Your neighbors ought to know that. Yeah. Your colleagues ought to know that. And members of Congress ought to know that. So I think it's time that we start looking internally and start drawing some of those associations and making them prize as well. Let's ostracize them. That's, that's why it exists. Just so yeah. we know what people are doing. And now is the time to do that. Yeah. Sometimes lobbyists, I think, um, try to gaslight people into thinking that representing someone as a lobbyist, representing a client as a lobbyist is like representing a client as an attorney in a court of law. <laughs> yeah, Seriously. that's true. That's and really true. It's, it's not. It's not at all. There's there's no... You don't have a right no, like, to be a to right to lobby. due process yeah. for getting your sort of like crony interests through on Capitol Hill. These are not the same thing. So, so this is not like... I mean, I, I actually also think that there's an argument to be made that we should make famous the horrible attorneys who represent horrible people. But this is not like, you know, a, a, a person just like you know, every, everybody deserves a, their, their day in court, like lobbyist style. Right. I but mean, they say are, that exact same thing. Do. Everybody is deserves representation. Right. And you're exactly. like, no, no, they, no, not no, that kind don't. of representation, right. actually. Like, <laughs> that's not what it says. But exactly right. That that's what they try to say. And the lawyers who work for all these guys who are not doing legal work right. are actually doing lobbying right. work and, and representation work. They may have gone to law school, but and the people yeah. that we're talking about are people like Paul Manafort, right? Yeah. These are like people whose names you just haven't heard of yet, right? So I think I think that's absolutely right. But but I do think I just, you know, want to bookmark something that was said last week, Ron, yeah. by someone who knows far more about this than I do, which was some of what Mark Polamaropoulos said on last week's roundup when he talked about just the 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 effect of the slow burn on someone like Putin and and you know the the sanctions on his daughters is is a really good example of that slow burn that Mark had really identified. Putin is very very private. Uh, he never talks about his family. It occurred to me when the news came out about the sanctions of his daughters. Like I didn't know he had daughters. I know nothing nothing about yeah. Putin's family life, right? Um, and and Putin has other people in his close orbit that he also wants to protect. There's a, a pretty um, well-founded belief that a former Russian Olympian um, is his now wife, romantic partner, whatever, and is like safely ensconced in Switzerland with like children who are more Putin children, allegedly, right? And so I think these daughters that are now his targets are are adult women, right. Who have their own lives and whatever. But I think that, that it is, these are important signal points, um, to, to just like 
find ways to continue to find ways to make Putin uncomfortable, right? Because some of these other types of sanctions do not get at him in the way that we might hope, right? But beginning to take aim at someone's private life it is is a is a a form of scrutiny that Putin, because of the power he enjoys and because of the chilling um, effect he's able to have on Russian state media and public discourse in Russia, you know, these are the kinds of things he's not used to this in the way that, say, an American politician mm-hmm. may be used to having everything be fair game. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. There's one other facet to these sanctions um, that I that I want to explore. And Mike, this gets at a conversation you and I have started having recently. Um, well, we've been having it for quite a while um, privately, but this is the idea about currency and currency wars and the and the warfare that we're about to see for the next 10 to 20 to 30 years is going to be uh, heavily influenced by currency wars. So dating back to Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014, uh, the Kremlin started stockpiling foreign reserves, and they have now uh, nearly doubled their holdings since then. And then shortly after they invaded Ukraine, uh, seven countries, the U.S. and its allies, most of these were uh, G7 countries, but not all, um, froze roughly half of the foreign reserves held by the Bank of Russia, the central bank in Russia. That's at least 244 billion, uh, according to NBC, of some you know 600 or so billion. Now, the ruble tanked as soon as this happened. Uh, but since then, it has rebounded now uh, to its pre-invasion exchange rate against the dollar. And that's due... Uh, in large parts to capital controls within Russia and Russia's ramp up of energy exports. But this dramatic seizure of U.S. treasuries from a sovereign nation's central bank is the first of its kind that we've ever seen. And a lot of experts, financial experts, uh, monetary policy experts are now referring to this as Bretton Woods Three or the beginning of Bretton Woods Three, which essentially changes the status quo of 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 foreign currency reserves, and the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Um, and I have to wonder, have been wondering out loud, and would love to hear from all three of you what you think about this. Uh, uh, what are the long-term consequences of introducing real liability to U.S. to holding U.S. Treasuries, real risk? Um, when U.S. Treasuries are are supposed to be, uh, we purport them to be a risk-free asset. Um, does this undermine international confidence in the dollar as the reserve, which is the primary reason, a primary reason the U.S. has been the world's biggest superpower um, for so long? I, I I wonder if other countries are now looking around the globe uh, at each other and at us and realizing, well, shit, if they can just turn them off in an instant, then why are we holding U.S. dollars as a reserve? Why are we holding U.S. debt in the first place? Let's not buy anymore let's figure out something else instead. And uh, there's a whole number of conversations to be had about what that something else or else's would be. But um, I just lay that on the table and I'm really curious about what you all think about that question. Well, that was a lot to lay out on the table, Ron. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I do think that there are a couple of unique dynamics, again, uh, with this conflict where we are looking at Ukraine rightfully as the flashpoint of this military engagement. Um, And I I do have some concerns about the way that we are approaching it as a country. I'm certainly no military expert, um, but I I do, I think, share a lot of 
of the thinking that we are not doing enough to back up what our words are saying, either consciously or or when they're added at the end of a speech in an ad lib, right? Um, but what is unique about this is is one, I think the 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 seizing of assets like that is is essentially unprecedented, and it, if if not, it's only happened during a time of war. Uh, it's essentially an act of war, <laughs> right? And and when you add that to kind of the the the, the misinformation and information um, campaigns that have been ongoing for many many years, the attempt to undermine people, other you know democracies, elections. I would argue that's also an act of war. And, and I say that because I, I, we're already in, we're, we're in this war. We're here. We we're in it. We're in it. And, and it, this war is not going to look like, at least for Americans at the moment, it's not going to look like the old, you know, history channel, black and white images of Jeeps going here and there and tanks going there. And, you know, uh, it, it may, it may get to that point, obviously, but that doesn't mean that that's the only terms of engagement with which we should be defining war. Russia is at war with us. Russia is at war with the West. They are attacking our institutions, and we are essentially responding in kind. With the seizure of their assets, with, 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 with the seizure of their foreign currency reserves, that is, I can't, that, that is extraordinarily significant. And we are we are we, we are rapidly barreling down this this road during this path and there just seems to be and maybe it's right maybe it's wrong again this isn't my area of expertise but it seems like we are hesitating at a time when we should be accelerating hmm. we are we we are we are we are essentially acknowledging that this is happening but we're pretending that it's not mm-hmm. and and i i'm not you know informed enough i guess to say that um that, that we should be treating this like the war that it obviously is. But I will tell you from a, from a campaign perspective, which is kind of like, yeah. uh, you know, a, a very uh, rudimentary way of, of looking at this type of conflict or engagement, you know, we, 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 we have a term for stealth campaigns and, and we call them losing campaigns <laughs> because, <laughs> because you're not, you're not addressing the situation that you're in. You're in a conflict. Treat it as such. Act yeah. as such. I just, I, I'm, I'm frustrated by what I see when I hear the administration saying this is a moral outrage, and we can't stand for this. But our policy doesn't match the, the rhetoric, and I, I think that, I think that leaves the American people um, less engaged than they need to be. I think that there's some confusion and lack of coherence on our foreign policy. And I can't imagine it's terribly comforting for our allies who, who are probably saying, you know, where's the leadership? Where's the leadership? And, and um, I, 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 you know, again, like I, I've been saying, I, I understand this is a unique engagement. I understand this is a unique time. I'm trying to, to pause and take a deep breath on this stuff. I just, the basics of, of conflict, um, suggest to me that we we should be taking a much more active leadership role and if you're slowly pulling arrows out of the quiver um and and firing into this conflict i would suggest you might want to let set down the bow and arrow grab your Mm. sword and head into the fight Mm. that you're already in Mm. okay molly i'm 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 looking to you because you were nodding Preach, along. Buddy. Yeah, Preach. you were you were well, nodding I mean, along look, there, and look, but I'm really curious about. I've, 
I very rarely yeah. refer to my own past writings in that annoying way that writers well, do. We refer to them a lot. Uh, well, but, but it, the piece I wrote in early 2017, that is why many people know who I am now, because it is the piece that, that got attention about this thing, was about this, that the West is already at war, whether it wants to be or not. And if we actually show up and fight the war, probably we're going to win the war because that's what we do. But we're not acknowledging that we're in the war. And I think we're very much still in this place. And it's so freaking frustrating in every iteration. It has been since 2008. But in this particular iteration where the White House seems so comfortable in the position that it's in right now, which in some aspects includes tremendous risk-taking and creativity in some of the new measures that are being taken. Like, and it's really great that all the all the the sanctions people who have been fantasizing and dreaming and writing these memos for years are finally like literally in a bar every night celebrating whatever thing they just got done because no one has listened to them forever and now they get to do all of these things they've wanted to do. Um, that stuff is all great. All of the risk taking in that space is great. But why are we still approaching this in a limited war sense? And the fact that we're so comfortable attacking where we feel there is no consequence for us and yet every day saying we really hope the Ukrainians keep fighting and dying while we slowly erode Russia's ability to fight or whatever the language of the day is. Like, how are we comfortable with that? Like, and when we know what that looks like, this isn't Ukrainian soldiers lining up against Russian soldiers and shooting at each other in nice, you know, rules of engagement. This is a total war where Ukrainian civilians are dying because they're fighting for their country because no one else is. And no one is showing up to help them, even though we know they're fighting this disgusting former superpower that is like willing to take everyone down with them on the way. And I just don't know why we're comfortable in that position of continuing to let them pay the price for what we know is a war against us and our ideals and fundamentally about the United States. Um, so I agree very much with Mike. Like, why is there no plan for this? Why does our foreign policy not reflect this? Why, if anything, it's like backtracked from where it was in, 20, uh, in 2010, 2009, after the Obama administration came in. It's like even further back from there where we're not even like talking about this stuff anymore. It's this much more withdraw, look at home, you know, less people overseas, less rhetoric about things like, yes, we'll have our nice democracy summit, but we're not really putting any boots behind it. Like, what do we think we're doing is really where I am on all of this. And I'm not seeing coherence of vision or message from the White House that I do believe has the right intentions on this stuff and wants to have a good legacy on these issues, but is just not looking at the different pieces of it in the way that I do, in the way that many of our frontline allies do, and certainly in the way the rest of the world does. I think just, just coming back to something that Mike said much earlier that I sort of forgot to mention, you know, there's this whole thing with that we were talking about the Republicans who are now echoing Russian messaging. And it's partially because online, uh, with these younger clowns who actually have no idea what they're talking about, Madison Cawthorn, um, online, there is a very well documented from early days by these fabulous academics that comb through all of the data and analyze all of the things there's a really well-structured reward system for engaging with Russian narrative. It's why all the bots and trolls and whatever exist. And it's because if you start amplifying crazy Russian narrative about things, they amplify you. 
and then you get more following. And then you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to post every comment about Ukrainians being Nazis, which is not true, by the way, uh, because then you get 10,000 retweets of your stupid comment. Um, and that same thing has been happening in the Republican space. And this whole fake vision of everything is where we are in our foreign policy. If you're left or right or in the White House or in you know the state house in freaking Wisconsin, you have this skewed, warped vision of what people think America is and what we should be, that we just need to decouple from this bizarre online discourse that has been completely warped and really just reflect against our own values, not about polling, not about is it popular or not. Do you really think it's freaking popular in Estonia to have to have a total national mobilization and spend... I mean, okay, equivalent, what is the U.S. committed to Ukraine in, in the new phase of fighting? I don't know, a couple billion dollars, right? Estonia has sent forward about $600 million in weapons for a country of 1 million people. So do that per capita, and it looks pretty bad for us, right? Like, do you really think this is what they want to be doing? No, but they're doing it, and they're not voting their government out for doing it because they actually their government actually explains to them why this is important, and they understand what's happening in the world. So, like, why are Americans so comfortable being completely removed from reality on these topics, and why do our leaders refuse to talk to us about it, including the White House? So, end rant. But I think all of these things connect in terms of the bad information online, how we let it influence us, where we are now in our own policy, and the fact that we're not in either party or in national leadership reflecting on how skewed, false, manipulated discourse is actually like changing how we view ourselves and talk about ourselves, even in a time of war when it's obvious what we should be doing, is really kind of crushing to me. Lucy, any final thoughts on the currency question? I think that it's really, I actually think the thing I'm really left with from what Molly just said is, is that's a really interesting observation that to put kind of a, a tighter point on it, that actually this is an area in which we have this idea that the right has become so brutal and awful and horrible, but that actually the way that we are anchoring as a country, even in the face of a lot of common perception that I actually also often hold, that we're moving leftward overall, right? Like we're moving leftward in our mores and our orientation, that in this way, the 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 kind of isolationist wing of the right is really winning. You're so right that the way that we're talking about this has, has, has really shifted and that there is now this default um, to, to think only of ourselves and, and that it is a matter of, of thinking of our, it is either a, a matter of, um, uh, that, that it's a binary, that there are not many, many ways in between that we could both be a country that, that cares about people at home and takes care of our citizens, but also really holds in our minds, our place in the world. So I think that's a, a super interesting observation that, that Molly brought into focus. Speaking of the awfulness of the right, Republicans have been threatening to go after Disney since the company reversed course and committed to working to repeal Florida's Don't Say Gay law. Laura Ingram laid out her plan for how Republicans should punish companies for lobbying against culture war legislation on her show last week. Here's what she said. And when Republicans, they get back into power, Apple and Disney need to understand one thing. Everything will be on the table. 
your copyright and trademark protection, your special status within certain states, and even your corporate structure itself. The antitrust division at Justice needs to begin the process of considering which American companies need to be broken up once and for all for competition's sake and ultimately for the good of the consumers who pay the bills. So um, (laughs) Ingram wasn't alone in her calls to punish companies. Uh, Indiana Congressman Jim Banks called Disney's opposition to the Don't Say Gay Law, quote, an attack on American democracy. And he uh, said in in a letter he wrote to Disney last week, informing them that he will not vote for any laws that help Disney when Disney is attacking American values on a regular basis. Those are his words. On Monday, Lauren Boebert threatened Disney, tweeting that a Republican controlled house would block, quote, woke Disney lobbyists when they ask Congress to extend Mickey Mouse's trademark, misspelling Mickey and confusing trademark for copyright. But anyway, Ohio Senate hopeful J.D. Vance tweeted that uh, Disney has declared war on America's children. Matt Gates offered to advise Florida state lawmakers on how best to fight Disney and said he'd tell them how to, quote, trap this rodent. Okay, so Mike, here's the here's what's this is significant. The reason we're talking about it is because it represents an advancement that I haven't seen yet, that I haven't seen before on the Republican side openly declaring that they're going to punish corporations that lobby for things they don't like. Now, we've been talking for quite some time about the culture wars and uh and and the rhetoric that Republicans have been using, but they have stopped short so far up until now of of using their power to punish corporations and Ingram very clearly calling for, you know, questioning their corporate structure, right? That's, um, that's an advancement. That's, uh, that's aggressive. Um, and I wonder if you can explain what's going on here. I can't explain. (laughs) I've been trying to come to terms with what the hell has happened. Uh, over the past few, look, there's a lot that's wrong here. The first is that it's somebody from a talk news show who's who's speaking on behalf of the Republican Party <laughs> is extraordinarily <laughs> troubling and threatening, you know, private industry um, from from behind a, a fake news desk. I mean, and 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 then to have everybody kind of rally around that banner is horrifying. But that's obviously not news. It's just, I think, still shocking to see it happening here in this country. Look, this is this is a demonstration that the Republican Party is more than happy to use the power of government to take over and seize or destroy private property as long as it fits its own narrative. That is one not conservatism as we've been saying, you know, for some time now we're probably way past that. But this is this is statism. This is using the power of government to coerce people into living a certain way based off of whatever it is that you believe. And of course, the fact that it's so tied in with the culture wars and there's this kind of weird obsession with with gender and sex and pedophilia, it's it's clearly driven by this, this you know, this Christian nationalism, which is uh, the Washington Post wrote a great story on this just uh, I think yesterday about just how how uh, political rallies are now taking on this sort of religious tone is it's not just kind of even on the margins of the Trump rallies anymore. It's becoming the ritual of politi- politics is is looking like a, a church service now, which um, 
it's not only anti-democratic, it's it's fascist in a, in a horribly frightening sense. And it's not emergent, it's dominant in the American right. And they're not trying to subtly dog whistle it anymore. It's literally coming from the mouths of some of their most popular um, and and influential um, characters on 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 their their news network. And again, it's just I, I can't explain how absurd it is to watch this happening from Fox News, where this is not an elected person. They're they're not even trying to suggest that they're they're. Um, they're impartial or fair and balanced anymore, right? They're, this is like, this is what's going to happen to you, corporations. We're coming after your companies. <laughs> it's just, it's your, 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 your corporate charter. Like, it's just, it's, it's, it's beyond anything that should be happening in this country. And it's, I, I can't explain it beyond that. I don't Lucy, know. what rule of law? There's one. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about this that really, I think is most troublesome. And and I was thinking about this in the last segment when, when, so let me back up for one second. I was thinking about how we were going to talk about this when Molly was talking about these Republicans suddenly having this strong position on NATO mm-hmm. as like uh, it is or is not effective as a peacekeeping force and how the thing that is troubling about well dealing with today's republicans is that they are not honest brokers and unfortunately the left and the kind of and when actually i i shouldn't even say the left i mean the side of pro democracy players often get ourselves backed into a corner where we think that the way to react is to basically fight them on the merits of the policy argument they're making, even though they're not really making a mm-hmm. policy argument, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, reflexively, if if a Republican is like, NATO is blowing it, right? Even though they don't necessarily really give a damn about Ukraine or NATO, our reaction is to be like, no, NATO is wonderful, right? And it actually could be both, right? It could both be that NATO is not functioning in the way that we want it to, and also that these Republicans don't give a damn. And that brings me to this. It is the same thing here. So I, as people know, have a real sort of still deep in my heart, I'm uh, like burning a candle for libertarianism and I hate crony capitalism. And actually in a lot of ways, there are many little, little kernels of policy ideas being put forward here by the Laura Ingrams of the world that I feel, you know, pretty, pretty warm and tender toward. Like I hate corporate welfare. And actually when you read about some of the policies that Disney has enjoyed in Florida, they're ridiculous. It is like kind of ridiculous that Disney has this special self-governing status on a whole lot of things like real estate, like all kinds of stuff that other Florida companies don't enjoy. And so when I see this, it really bothers me because there are actually some things that they are right about, in my view, on the policy front, right? But the way that they're acting them out and the reason that they're acting them out, they don't care about this policy at all. Because, you know, if there were some way that they could uh, carry out better corporate welfare and crony capitalism on behalf of my pillow, you better believe they would be there for the my pillow guy, right? Yeah, but they're not. And so <laughs> they're not. And it's just a reminder of, of what dishonest brokers 
they are and and how we can't get sucked into the phony policy fights that they're having because they are wherever the wind blows. And it is just, unfortunately, it's so boring. It's just culture wars. It's just like culture wars, culture wars, culture wars. And I wish that I could come on to politicology and say like, and I think Mike was sort of saying this too, like, by golly, I've figured it out. <laughs> it's that they really want to uh, just like streamline the tax code, right? But they actually don't care. They could they could have a completely different view on corporate welfare next week, right? It is weird culture wars, white nationalism, white Christian nationalism dressed up as economic policy. And the, the Mike sort of touched on this very briefly, but it is important and people should pay attention to this. The feeling of Republicans acting more like they're just carrying out kind of like church services in campaigning is so true. And, you know, in states around the country, state legislative races are beginning, primaries are happening in many places, and people who are running for lower levels of government, like your local city council person, your state lawmaker, whatever, those people are really gearing up right now. I watch those races really closely. They, I've never seen anything like this, right? These are like people who are putting Ephesians on their campaign websites, right? And these are like mainstream Republicans, incumbents and challengers. And, and it is, it is all, they are, it is a blob of culture <laughs> yeah. war. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Molly, go ahead. Yeah. And just to, just to maybe second something Lucy said, like, yeah, the Republicans can talk to me about Disney's special status when we can talk about the fact that Walmart is like the greatest abuser of the United States welfare system of any corporation, probably in the history of the country that like every Walmart employee is supported by food stamps because they don't pay them enough. And somehow we're fine with all of this being like totally normal, like whatever. So I think there is the hypocrisy that we all know is there. And like Republicans would be 100% happy to give all sorts of benefits to any companies that want to like not let gays have wedding cakes or whatever, you know, whatever shit. Like we all know this is the way that it is. But the thing that bugs the crap out of me about all of this, and I have ranted previously, I believe, on on politicology about this before, um, is the deep discomfort I have with what is obviously a completely unnecessary and cheap shot legislative move in Florida uh, about this don't say gay thing. Um, Because this whole area of crap, the anti-gay hate in every form that it takes is Putin's greatest entree in the world to other people. It is how he became significant uh, as a political player in Poland how he became significant as a political player in Hungary, how he recruited American evangelicals whom Orthodox people believe are like Satanists to help him with his work here in the United States and fund them to do it. Um, This whole area of overlapping anti-gay hate, often uh, enhanced by misogyny and control of women, um, but but the anti-gay hate is a specific category that works everywhere, not just in parts of the United States, parts of Europe, where there are still traditional conservative values that are being abused by Putin. But in the vast rest of the world where support for gay rights is not the norm by any way, shape, or form, um, this avenue of anti-gay hate is exploited by enemies of America and used to pervert the thinking of Americans to support our enemies. And I am not saying if you are a person who is not comfortable with gay rights that you are a supporter of Putin, and that is why. But like, you need to understand how these lanes of, of thinking are abused by people to get in front of us and make us think things that are, uh, that are bad for our democracy. 
Um, and there's just not like we really are not paying enough attention to how this has gained ground in America, particularly the financial motives that some people see in, in being here. Um, so I have a lot of question about these throwaway political, uh, you know, campaigns that are being run on anti-gay hate and where they are coming from and why. Um, but I just, again, it all sort of connects to this crap information universe that is being used to subvert us um, in a way that I'm just so profoundly uncomfortable with when I see it being used in America in these cheap shot ways. Like, for example, in Europe, when governments are taken over by uh, Kremlin-funded, Russia-aligned, softly influenced parties, often one of the first things they do is try to amend the constitution to ban gay marriage, even if gay marriage is not something that's being, you know, discussed in that country. Um, because again, it just, it creates this unnecessary polarization in society and everybody goes insane. Um, but I'm just so uncomfortable about what I'm seeing in Florida and in, in U.S. races and writ large on this whole weird Christian nationalism thing. Like, no, 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 no. Crap Information Universe, I think, is the title of today's show. <laughs> so... <laughs> Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's briefly turn to what uh, you're watching. Mike, what do you have for us? I'm actually uh, watching more numbers roll in, um, this time from Europe. Uh, Macron Macron looks um, incredibly weak at this moment in time, and Marine Le Pen looks pretty darn strong, which is (laughs) Molly's reaction there. It's uh, horrifying, I, I think is probably the right word. I, I don't know if I've used that too much. Um, yeah, look, this is um, Marine Le Pen, of course, is, uh, is kind of the far right uh, nationalist candidate uh, from the, the family that uh, has brought us many nationalist can- candidacies in, in uh, France's recent history. Um, this is this is particularly problematic, especially at a time when NATO needs to be um aligned and cohesive, and Putin doesn't need any uh, more allies. The fact that this segment of the French electorate has um, coalesced the way that it has and is gathering steam beyond the kind of usual 30% of the voters that it gets, she's now testing about a point ahead of Macron in a, in a, in a runoff. Long way to go in the race, but um, concerning. There's this, this rising right-wing fascism is not just part of the American uh, political story at this point, and it's not just part of the West. I think Molly just outlined a lot of these issues that really drive a universal um, um, sentiment in people, and uh, Putin has been able to exploit a lot of those lines uh, and divisions in society very, very well. Division is is where he plies his trade, and the Le Pens um, have been more than happy to kind of carry that water for some time. And unfortunately, it looks like it's going to be a very close contest with a key ally in the midst of this crisis uh, at a moment when the world, the Western world doesn't need it. A key ally and a permanent seat on the UN Security Council, we should remind our listeners. It's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Lucy, what do you got? Well, I know this isn't necessarily so under the radar, but I think it's important for some reasons that may not immediately surface. And that is that I've really been following closely Elon Musk's stake in Twitter 
So for those just catching up, Elon Musk now um, owns nearly 10% of Twitter. He began acquiring their stock earlier this spring, and uh, he made quick work of tweeting out about um, tweets that would suggest that maybe he plans to to be uh, quite an activist investor, um, tweets about whether or not his followers think that Twitter stifles free speech, that kind of stuff. And and now as a person who owns almost 10% of the company, he is uh, going to be seated as a board member of Twitter. But a thing that has not been surfaced quite as much is the way that Musk, who of course we have to assume has excellent advice and is not like on his own e-trade account buying, making trades and purchasing, uh, you know, like taking billion dollar stakes in companies, um, how he came to acquire the Twitter stock. And last month, um, there's an SEC rule that requires uh, investors when they get to the point of taking a 5% stake in a company, they're required to 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 make a disclosure through an SEC form. And uh, Musk crossed that number on March 14th. And then he continued to buy up stock in Twitter between then and this past Monday when he had acquired almost 10% of the company and, and uh, then announced it publicly. And so in that time, what functionally happened is that Elon Musk was able to buy up more stock, knowing that when he made the announcement, the stock value would grow, go up. And of course it did. He was buying it at like $39 a share. And now with the news that Musk has taken such a big stake, it's risen by like 20%. And Musk himself, just through the timing and the lack of, of um, diligence around filing, he basically was able to net an extra $156 million in profits um, by not following SEC rules. And I think this is really interesting. I mean, he's a guy who's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. I'm not suggesting that like $156 million is meaningful to Elon Musk, but uh, there will probably be no consequences for this, right? For Elon Musk, at most the SEC, I mean, the SEC could come after him, but they probably won't. It would be a tough case to win. But at most, he'll maybe be fined like a a few hundred thousand dollars. He's not going to be fined this profit. And he also, in his SEC filings originally, he uh, described himself as a passive investor as opposed to an activist investor, as if to indicate that he's just, you know, taking a stake in Twitter because he wants to watch his stock grow the way that I'm like watching the stock in my 401k grow. Um, and I really can't stand Elon Musk. I just want to put that out there. I think he's just a gruesome, awful figure. And I think that as we look around the world, as we think about like big tech, we think about oligarchy and we think about power and how the richest people in the world interact with government. I think Elon Musk is is really a person that we should study very closely beyond the kind of like Ayn Rand fanboy crowd that has, you know, made a, a, a quick idol of Elon Musk because he also fashions himself as this like hero of the little guy when taking on big tech. But one, 
the guy himself in his own companies receives insane subsidies, right? Like is completely in bed with the government, completely doing all the kinds of things that people who fear big tech claim big tech is doing, right? Like trying to keep other people out of the marketplace. And meanwhile, is like making this little $150 million on the side by flouting regulations about his Twitter stock purchase. I, I just think that we, we talk a lot about scrutiny of big tech and, and, and we should really scrutinize the people who are fashioning themselves as heroes in that, in that, um, in that crusade, because I think that there's a little more that meets the eye than meets the eye. And that's perhaps a little bit of a anti-Musk rant for you, but I think it's something <laughs> to keep an eye on. Molly, I was also going to bring that story, but I would have covered it in a different way. Molly. <laughs> Ron Stresso, Musk fan. Well, I wasn't going to talk about the edit button, but anyway, Molly. <laughs> no edit button. No edit button. It's our own fault for having typos. Totally agree. And sometimes I, the typos are really funny. Let's be honest. Sometimes the typos are really funny. <laughs> there should be no edit. You know, for me, it's it's really the, the person who, anytime I have a typo, politicology folks will like this. It feels like I have a typo in a tweet and then I don't realize it. And I look down and George Conway has retweeted <laughs> it. And George has, I know. George has such, and then it's like, oh God, well, it's already been retweeted by George. I can't take <laughs> no, it Now back. I can't take it back. <laughs> <laughs> Molly, what do you got? I mean, I'm just uh, these days only able to, I didn't even know about this Twitter thing. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, I mean, but it's it's a really good example of like, being a rich person and moving money around makes you more money, which the Russians do all the time to make themselves more money yes. in a really fascinating way that like, if you, the poor schlep actually working for a wage in America doesn't understand that when you're voting for these people thinking that like you too will someday be the rich person, you're not because you're not making $156 million off of gaming Twitter stock by not reporting yourself to the SEC. So that aside, um, uh, the only thing I'm able to watch these days is uh, Ukraine and our reaction or lack thereof to it. And I am extremely worried about where we are right now, 40 some days into this conflict. Uh, as Lucy said earlier, with sort of waning attention, waning ability to absorb, which is standard, normal human behavior. There's nothing, uh, tra- you know, there's nothing that we should overly criticize the casual consumer on on this front. But um, I think in the inability of uh, and I've, I think I've brought this up before, but like even seeing American support in polls for defending Ukrainians, doing something about Russia, being willing to pers- personally sacrifice um, in order to uh, support Ukraine, the inability of our politicians to capitalize on that early support in a way that would have made it more sustainable for us to move forward and help Ukraine before people become sort of more personally aware of what the cost to them will be and not understanding why there are any. Um, I think it's really like, I'm already feeling this is a tremendous missed leadership opportunity from both parties in America. And it's obvious the Republicans like other than Adam Kinzinger don't give a crap about missing this opportunity for the most part. Um, But uh, I'm disappointed to see that literally no one, in the entire American political landscape, be it current or people who aspire to be national leaders in the future, no one has decided to capitalize on this moment to speak to the country about our role in the world and how important it is that we have one 
um, and be a force for good and define what that is now is just like the stunning echoing silence where every morning I wake up with John McCain's voice in my head saying, be brave, mm-hmm. the rest is easy, and nobody is fucking brave anymore, mm-hmm. is really uh, increasingly a source of heartbreak for me when I'm looking at where we're heading in this country. And there's a reason we're missing the boat on all of these other fights, and it's because we cannot bring ourselves to face them. Um, and we will be out on our butts really soon if we have another administration that does not want to fight the fights that need to be fought. Love to hear Liz Cheney give that. Feels like her Ditto. right now. Feels like a huge opportunity for her. All right, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we're going to look at some of the interesting research about what happens when Fox News viewers watch CNN, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, Molly? Um, on Twitter, at Molly McHugh or uh, at greatpower.us. Lucy? I'm on Twitter, at Lucy M. Caldwell. And Mike? Find me on Twitter, at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter, at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.